2: I'm author and journalist Laura Price, and you're listening to Life in Food, inspiring stories in bite-sized pieces. Each week, I interview a different guest about how food has helped them through some of their biggest challenges. With a different theme each week, we look at everything from food and love, to food and friendship, food and family, and even food and grief. This week's episode is Food and Fashion, with Lauren Bravo, author of the upcoming novel pre loved Lauren is a freelance journalist who writes about fashion, popular culture, food, travel and feminism for publications including Stylist, Cosmopolitan and Sunday Times Style. She's written two non-fiction books, How to Break Up with Fast Fashion and What Would the Spice Girls Do, which is a celebration of girlhood and pop culture with a double dose of nostalgia. I think I first came across Lauren's writing in a magazine called Foodism, which we've both written for. And I've since gone back and found that the title of the feature I read was Forget Oysters, The True Food of Love is Pasta and Potatoes. And so it's no surprise that I've had this feeling that we might be kindred spirits for a while. We met IRL, as they say, at the book launch for Justin Meyer's latest novel, The Fake Up. So a shout out to Justin for introducing us. And also he has his own episode on this podcast about food and dating. Lauren was kind enough to give me a lovely endorsement for my debut novel, Single Bald Female, and in return, I've just devoured the proof of her debut fiction, Pre Loved, and it is glorious. It comes out in April 2023, and it's a tale of friendship, loss, and being true to yourself no matter the expectations. Lauren is here to talk to me today about food and fashion, and I'm not talking Lady Gaga's infamous meat dress, but in fact, the fashion of food and whether it's okay to follow the trends when it comes to restaurants and ingredients. We'll also talk about pre-loved, nostalgia, and what happens when the worlds of food and fashion collide. Lauren, thank you so much for joining me and welcome to Life in Food.
3: Oh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
2: Lauren Bravo, is that your real name?
3: It is, yeah. I <laughs> I get asked that a lot, and I always like to think that if I was
2: going to come up with a pen name, it would be
3: slightly better than Lauren Bravo. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, it is. It's it's real.
2: No, it's the best name. And I know you have that on the on your website, Lauren Bravo is my real name. And I think yeah. if you if you ever have a newsletter or a blog or something, that that is just Lauren Bravo is my real name is a great name for it. <laughs> my little brother just
3: went to have uh Johnny Bravo for Halloween. So
2: Oh ah, perfect. Perfect. Well that's a perfect piece of nostalgia right there, actually, Johnny mm. Bravo. So could you tell us what pre loved is about?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So I mean the crux of it is it's about a woman who is feeling a bit lost um she's she's her name's Gwen she's in her late 30s and we meet her eating alone in a restaurant um well not even a restaurant a gastropub somewhere vaguely outside Lutterworth I think and um she's just been made redundant from the job that she's been sort of treading water in for quite a few years and She's feeling quite adrift. So a lot of her friends have drifted away, in the way that you know people tend to over the course of our thirties. They've all sort of got married and had kids and left London. And um, she's slightly estranged from her family as well, for reasons that we sort of find out a little bit later on in the book. And she's just feeling a bit lonely and a bit lost. Um, and she's eating a really surprisingly good dinner. And um, the dinner inspires her to sort of jumpstart her life a little bit. She makes a list of things that, you know, an action plan, things that she needs to do. Um, And one of them is donating a bag full of her ex-fiance's stuff to a charity shop. She goes to the charity shop and ends up volunteering there. And so the book is kind of about Gwen getting her life back together, but it's also about things. It's... um, kind of a love story about things is one of the the subtitles that we're using and the her story is interspersed with lots of little short stories that tell the story of objects that come to be donated in the shop and who gave them away and why and who ends up buying them um and it's partly because I just really enjoy writing little short stories that don't necessarily have to go anywhere um but I really love that idea of the significance of objects and the fact that we don't always know when something is going to be really important to us and it can look like a piece of tat to one person but to somebody else it can actually be invested with an awful lot of meaning so yeah that is how I sum up the book I need to come up with a better elevator that was a ramble.
2: <laughs> oh my god yeah that I mean the vignettes the little short stories that you intersperse the chat of the kind of main storyline with are amazing they're so special and I think um, your friend Daisy Buchanan said a sense of magic on every page Um, it's so true and I think actually probably my favorite moment in the book is when you have a person working in I guess a sweatshop in Cambodia producing this item of clothing putting massive massive amount of love into this item of clothing which then gets shipped across the world and possibly no one's gonna ever wear it and it ends up in a charity shop and it's just um uh, it was moving and it made me think so um so clearly about fast fashion and that's obviously a world that you write about and you know so much about and you've written another book about as well. Um, and we'll come on to that but yeah it's so special but also that was one of the most moving moments I think for me but it's just so funny this book (laughs) it's hilarious (laughs) um really 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 made me laugh and just sort of relate to a lot of the things like a lot of the nostalgia as well so well done you.
3: Thank you so much Laura that means a lot I'm in the very anxious phase now where people are just (laughs) starting to read the book so I'm kind of on high
2: yeah high
3: alert all the time worrying what people think of it so
2: Oh, it's going to be Oops. very, very much loved and, and one day even pre-loved. We'll just get <laughs> to see it in some charity shops. <laughs> um, so it's not a book about food, but there is so much food throughout the book. It starts with the sticky toffee pudding, there's ramen with the most amazing descriptions, there's kimchi, there's tacos, um, there's a lot of delicious detail in there, and you can tell that a food writer has written this book basically. <laughs> um, why was it important to include lots of detail about food in a book about? Charity shops. Do you know I'm just not sure I could
3: not have included loads of details about food. I mean, you know, like you say, I, I I am a food writer among kind of other other hats that I wear. And I get really frustrated when I'm reading a book and they're not telling me what people are eating. I know obviously, you know, your book has got some glorious food descriptions as well, and I just think it's such an intrinsic part of life. And pleasure, and I think it tells us a lot about people. Um, also, I knew I wanted Gwen to be like quite a sensual person, even though she is the last person in the world that would ever describe herself as that. Um, and I kind of liked because I knew that I wasn't going to write a particularly sexy book. I just, I don't think I, I didn't have it in me for my first novel, particularly not when I knew my parents would be reading it. Um, <laughs> but I wanted to kind of use food, I guess, as a way of exploring her relationship to herself and her own body and I guess ideas of self-care and so yeah it just seems really natural to me to start the book and end the book with um well that's a bit of a spoiler um but yeah there are significant meals let's say in Gwen's life um also I think you know there's I think Virginia Wolf said it in um, A Room of One's Own that she gets really frustrated when authors don't tell you what people are eating and so I just <laughs> I've had that in my head ever since and I thought yeah I'm gonna put a lot of food in because why not?
2: Good. I think when I was a kid, I think what made me love books was when I read scenes that mentioned food or drink. It was really weird. But when you would we'd have like someone picks up a coffee cup, it's just that sound of coffee cup that it makes with the with the and this the C's yeah. in my head, like it just made, made me think of food and it can be super basic and you've gone the total opposite end and you've gone really deep into food descriptions and it's just like it is magical it's, it's great thank you <laughs> so we can't talk about this book without talking about nostalgia which is a huge, huge, huge thing. It's very cool, I think. I actually took a photo of a page that mentions Gino Genelli ice cream, <laughs> which is something I don't think I, I, I was like, oh, my God, Gino Ginelli. And then the song came in, Gino, oh, Gino Ginelli yes. from the advert, um, from when I was like 10 or something. And you mentioned loads of other things like Ace of Bass, All That She Wants and Born Slippy and all these sounds and sights and flavors from the 90s and noughties. What was your relationship with food like as a child? And what do you think triggered your love of nostalgia? Oh, I, I mean,
3: I've always been a greedy person. Like food has always been, yeah, really important to me. I mean, it's funny, there's a kind of ongoing joke in my family that I, my memory works via food and clothes. So I won't remember something until you say, oh, it was the day that we had that pudding or it was the day that you were wearing that outfit and then immediately I'm right back there. Those are obviously—I don't know if they're my love language, my trigger point, something like that. Um, but I—I I mean, yeah, I grew up on a pretty average '90s diet. There was a lot of Finder's crispy pancakes, and stuff like that in the early days. And um, I remember kind of really like food was a bit of a, a prize and an accessory from a very young age. So when I was starting to think ahead of this conversation about food and fashion immediately my brain went to chuppa-chupp lollipops in the Mm. 90s, obviously, you know, through a prism of the Spice Girls, um, and things like hubba-bubba, bubblegum, and, you know, they were almost trophies as well as tasty treats because you wanted to be seen with them. (laughs) And, you know, I have very vivid memories of really kind of coveting certain snacks and and treats because they they looked cute as well, aesthetically. Um, Mm. And I think, yeah, getting older... As well. So, my I, I was a vegetarian when I, I turned vegetarian about eight, I think. And it, honestly, my reason was because I thought it would make me cool. I sort of used which is <laughs> <that. laughs> embarrassing to admit. I think I probably had some kind of cover line about animal rights, but genuinely, I was just like, yeah, that would be an interesting thing to do. That would give me a bit of identity. Um, growing up in a very bland suburban town in Sussex, where I didn't really feel like I had much in the way of identity. Um, and so I, yeah, I guess food was always sort of a way of marking out, yeah, who I was and trying to sort of explore a slightly more exciting world. And American food as well, I think in the 90s, particularly, was massive. You know, I grew up watching mm-hmm. Able the Bells, Sweet Valley High, reading babysitters' club books, all of that. And so any snack that they mentioned in, in those books, you know, I'm old enough to remember a time when you couldn't get Oreos in the UK. Or things like big red chewing gum, stuff like that. Oh god, yeah, was very exciting.
2: Pop tarts. Pop tarts yeah, was totally. the big one, and That's it was such a treat.
3: treat. Yeah, that was it. And you know, I'm from a very kind of ordinary family. We yeah, weren't buying extravagant, extravagant kind of snacks all the time. So anytime you did get your hands on something like that, it was really exciting.
2: Mm. You're a writer. um, You write about food and you write about fashion, possibly the dream career. Mm -hmm. But those are two um, very different things to write about. How did you come to write about these two kind of different specialist subjects?
3: I sort of fell into writing about food, actually. Um, I thought I wanted to be a fashion writer, I think probably because I'd been you know, fed a diet of uh, rom-coms where it was always the heroine working for some kind of glossy magazine, and I just assumed that was what I wanted to do. And then I, um, I got one of my first jobs out of uni, was just a, a temp job um, at a digital content agency that happened to run the website for Channel 4 Food. And I did a bit of work for them. I was just uploading come dine with me recipes um, into a kind of dodgy CMS for a few weeks. And I ended up getting a permanent job on that team. And I stayed at at that agency for four and a half years and sort of worked my way up um, in the ranks of Channel 4 Food. And it was just a dream job. And I loved it. And I think as soon as I started doing that job, it kind of clicked into place. And I thought, God, yeah, I love food. Why has it never really occurred to me to write about this before? Um, And it was also a much friendlier world, I think, than fashion journalism. Mm -hmm. Now, I think a lot of the stereotypes about the world of fashion writing, sadly, are still true. Um, Whereas food, I sort of found myself in that world and thought, actually, this is wonderful. And it was fun. Um, You know, I got to kind of run like the Easter egg taste test every year (laughs) in the office and go to all the Christmas in July events and, yeah, watch endless, episodes of come dine with me and write recaps and that kind of thing it was great
2: what a job what a job (laughs) so let's talk about the fashion of food Food comes in and out of fashion almost as much as clothes come out in and out of fashion. Um, When we were talking about recording this podcast, you mentioned hummingbird cupcakes, which were like very much the trend. um, I don't know how long ago, maybe 15, 20 years. Um, And then 10 years ago, there was salted caramel and then there was sourdough. I know, I think you wrote about that for foodism as well. Avocados, quinoa, kimchi. Um, Do you think, though, that there's a danger in treating food as fashion?
3: Yeah, I definitely think that it, it's a sort of double edged sword, isn't it? I think it's interesting that often what we deem as fashionable food in the UK or what is kind of used as shorthand for a certain kind of middle class posturing is often food that millions of people around the world have been eating for centuries as standard. You know, we look at something like quinoa. um, I mean let's look at let's get political and talk about tofu and Suella Braverman's speech in the commons a few weeks ago that used tofu as this kind of shorthand for a a certain kind of um yeah guardian reading elite (laughs) but actually of course there are millions and millions of people across Asia that eat tofu every day it's a very standard basic food stuff so I think it's interesting when we talk about food being fashionable that we have to be aware of Uh, the cultures often that we have adopted those foods from and not treat them as fads and sort of something that can come in and out of fashion in the way that clothes can um but also you know I think there's a there's a lot of fun to be had as well like particularly when when you're young and you're kind of learning about the world a lot of those food trends are maybe the first way that you experience a, a certain kind of food you've never eaten before so you know my hummingbird cupcake era was um, when I had recently moved to London, I was 18, I went to Union London. And it was just such an exciting time, because I felt like I'd finally escaped <laughs> Worthing, and um, was, you know, introduced to, yeah, all of these ingredients and flavours and textures and things that I'd never had before. And that was really exciting. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, in terms of hummingbird cupcakes and everything that came before and after them obviously we had the era of the macaron the uh the short <laughs> the whoopie pie rain if you remember that um and it was all about kind of the Instagram effect wasn't it even in the days before Instagram it still was meant to be something kind of that looked beautiful before it tasted delicious so I think a lot of us kind of learned the hard way that sometimes the queue for an hour wasn't necessarily worth it for the flavour <laughs> you got
2: yeah, I wonder if, um, because you know how some things uh, like older, you know, cloth clothing from the sixties or seventies or whatever comes back into fashion every twenty years or however often, then and then we get names like you know our grandmother's names are often the names of our children because we we recycle those and 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 whatnot. Do do you think that food? Do you think that retro food ever comes back into fashion, like spam and? <laughs> I'm trying to think of other examples, like, t- yeah. you know, tinned peaches and things. I can't, I don't think, it, I don't know if it does as much, does it?
3: I don't know. I think sometimes, I think there is a certain credibility that very retro food has. So I remember when I was in my late teens and I, um, I went to school Form in Brighton and I was obsessed with being a mod and, you know, I used to watch Quadrophenia and stuff. And we went through a real phase of wanting to eat pie and mash all the time. or mm. we'll go to really kind of old fashioned greasy spoons and have a big fry up. And, and actually, when I was thinking um, about kind of retro restaurants that I think, you know, still have a certain kind of cool, there's a brilliant one, could be in Bethnal Green. Um, I don't know if you've been there, which is, it's been there for like 100 years, it's been run by the same um, Italian family. And that is, you know, a very classic, they, they do a kind of massive fry up, they do a pasta dish, they do amazing tiramisu, it's kind of, cram everybody in but you know the decor inside is kind of unchanged it's all wood paneled so I think that yeah from time to time retro foods do kind of acquire a certain kitsch value that kind of fanny craddock-esque everything sort of covered in glacé cherries and angelica and stuff I mean if you look at the um the wedding cake actually that I had at my own wedding last year which is very much you know part of the trends that we've seen recently for these very 70s style very kitsch frou-frou kind of pastel coloured cakes which I think in turn was a bit of a backlash against the rustic kind of naked cakes everything very natural and sort of covered in fresh flowers and things so yeah I don't think that it's as fickle as um as fashion in terms of recycling trends but I think occasionally we mm. see things kind of come back
2: I suppose trifle now is more uh, more in fashion than it was. Remember when I was growing up, you're like, oh, trifle, but now okay. I love a trifle. And it's funny you should mention Ipolici because just before lockdown in 2020, I was writing just a, a, occasionally writing reviews for Time Out, and they had asked me to review some retro restaurants to kind of update them to make sure they were on their website. And Ipolici was one of the ones that I'd been asked to do, and I never got to go because oh, nice. th- we, we ended up in lockdown, and then yeah. So um, I'll have to go one of these days, but Bethnal Green's a bit of a way for me to go. Oh, it's worth Um, it. It's great.
3: Yeah. (laughs) Um,
2: We've touched on this a little bit, but the word pre-loved is all about giving new life to an object. It's it's often used to describe an item of clothing. um, And you embrace that with these wonderful vignettes throughout the book about the kind of life that an object or an item of clothing or whatever had before it ended up in that charity shop. Um, but it did make me think about pre-loved in terms of restaurants, mm-hmm. because um, social media and before it, traditional media have really made us emphasize trends and the hottest new thing. And, you know, we get really excited about a new restaurant, but we end up, you know, neglecting perhaps um, older restaurants, older, older and very, very much loved restaurants. Are there any pre-loved restaurants you'd like to shout out? And what do you think about that That idea of revisiting older restaurants
3: yeah I think that um it is a real shame actually when you get those restaurants that have sort of almost had their their heyday and then we all just move on to the next place and they're still turning out the you know the same great food that they always have yeah I've got a lot I think because I've lived in London now for 16 years and so you know some of my favorite places to go and eat are the places that remind me of when I was first here and when I was young. And um, and I, I didn't necessarily have the money to be going to sort of really trendy places. I didn't necessarily know where the trendy places were. And it was all about, yeah, local restaurants. So um, one of the first places my husband ever took me was Anatolia Kebab Shop on Mare Street in Hackney, which he um, he built as his favorite restaurant. And I thought, oh, this is romantic. This guy I'm seeing is taking me to his favorite restaurant. And we got there and it was a kebab shop. Um, <laughs> but You know what? It was delicious. It was amazing. It was like the nicest Turkish food I'd ever eaten at that point. And we still have a real sort of nostalgic soft spot for it. We still go back there. Um, and you married him. And I married him, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it works. I mean, <laughs> I've yeah. And so I've got a lot like that, actually, particularly in that area in Hackney. So um, we went a couple of weeks ago to Trade Viet, which is a Vietnamese restaurant um, on Mare Street. And that was as delicious as ever. And we were the only people in there for about an hour. And, and then it sort of slowly filled up and you kind of think, oh, okay, no, it's nice that people are loyal to those kind of local places. Um, I also, I really love... A lunch, like a chain restaurant sometimes that just hits the spot like mm. I still love a Wagamama's you know there are still some nights where actually I can't be bothered to think of you know the latest hot place that um everybody says we need to go I just want to go to Wagamama's and have a katsu curry
1: mm.
3: um and I love a pizza uh, express pizza express yeah totally you know where you are with some dough balls mm. uh yeah I think I think there will always be a, a place for, for those kind of restaurants as well um there's a place called duck soup in soho if we're going slightly fancier that is one of my all-time favorites and i've been there so many times over the years and i would take people there because it's just such a like reliable um but special place and
2: i remember oh the- lauren oh sorry go on
3: no tell me do you love No, those? i was just gonna say that's where
2: we went on our first date and now we're oh. getting married so actually it, oh. makes me, it makes me cry a little bit thinking about this memory because we were in lockdown well we were coming out of lockdown and it was um, only outdoor dining, and uh, it was pouring with rain, and we were just under this single umbrella. And sorry, I'm getting all emotional. <laughs> um,
1: oh, and funny. it was just
2: chucking it down with rain, and the and the rain was coming into the food, but we really wanted to like stay out, <laughs> so we just sat there in the rain, huddled together. It was great. Love duck soup. We haven't been back yet, actually, so we need to. Oh,
3: you must go. It's just the best. And I remember the first time I went, I thought this is exactly the kind of restaurant that I imagined. As a teenager, thinking about when I moved to London, that is the kind of restaurant I imagined. It looks like a restaurant out of a Richard Curtis movie or something. It's got that very, (laughs) very authentic, very low key, dark, you know, dim lighting, candles. The menu is just handwritten on a piece of paper. Mm. And actually, it's funny talking about food and fashion. I think that's one of those signifiers, isn't it? You know that a restaurant is going to be trendy if the menu is handwritten on a piece of paper. (laughs) There's those little, yeah, I think those little tells. but it's it's trendy but it's also timeless and I love it
2: yeah and I think Instagram's got so much to answer for in terms of like in in good and bad ways because Instagram's done so much for the restaurant industry like it is how how I find a lot of the places mm. that I end up going to so it's brilliant 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 for restaurants and for chefs but at the same time it does kind of glamorize um you know, the the hottest and latest new thing and also good looking food. Oh. Uh, and I've actually recorded a different episode about this, about food and social media with the amazing Sarah Tasker. Um, yeah. But but yeah, it, it's like, it, it it's almost as if, and there was that trend, Ugly Delicious with Dave Chang, um, mm-hmm. where that hashtag that he created and the show that he created. But it's like, for me, and I sense maybe for you as well, ugly food is the most delicious and totally but you can't you can't convey that on social media can you
3: yeah absolutely that's the thing you know some of my very favorite things to eat just look like a big pile of beige (laughs) and and that's some maybe that's you know maybe that is the secret actually when you've had a really special meal and you don't have any good photos on your phone to show show for it at the end yeah
2: totally very much so
1: it's that time of the year Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com.
2: So let's talk about where food meets fashion, i.e. diet. So when I think about the fashion world, and I know nothing about fashion world, but when I think about modeling, I think about the fact that models were encouraged not to eat and that how dangerous that is and how you know, it leads to eating disorders and and all kinds of um, mental health issues. Do you think food and fashion are two opposing things? I think they often
3: can be, yeah. And I think that there's often a kind of veneer because, you know, it doesn't seem very chic to pretend, you know, to, to kind of admit that you're a person who doesn't eat. Um I, Hopefully, I really hope that the days of, you know, Karl Lagerfeld kind of proudly existing on Diet Coke um, might be behind us. but what my my sort of experience in my my limited experience with uh you know fashion events and things is that there will always be food but people don't eat it (laughs) and it's not very it's not very stylish to kind of prioritize food you know and I'm not a big drinker so like I I need to eat I'm not one of those people that can go out and have four glasses of wine and then maybe think about dinner at 10 o'clock at night it's like no food is always going to be my priority um And so, you know, it's interesting because I think fashion and food have tried to come together many, many times. And we've even seen, you know, collaborations between kind of high end fashion brands and fast food chains um, that has, you know, trickled all the way down. So now we have a world in which Primark and Greggs are hand in hand. Um, But often, I think when you scratch the surface, you realise that the two can be quite incompatible. Um, As you say, you know, modelling famously rife with with disordered eating. And I think that that, of course, has a trickle down effect to those of us who grew up reading all those magazines in the 90s and the noughties, worshipping fashion. I myself, you know, certainly have a very tricky and complex relationship with food that I have only really kind of managed to straighten out a bit in the last few years myself. Um, I do think things are getting better. You know, I think that the sort of fat acceptance movement, body positivity has has kind of moved the needle a lot on that. But I also keep reading really worrying reports from people who are going to catwalk shows and saying, do you know what? I think that the Y2K trend revival might actually even be extending to a return to kind of size zero models again, which is really, really upsetting to hear. So mm-hmm. I don't think these things are ever linear. I think it's always a bit of a two steps forward, one step back um, kind of progress. But you know, in the lighter side of things, I think that food and fashion can kind of work really beautifully together. Um, I, yeah, I think that often it's much more about kind of street style and real people and what we consider fashionable, rather than what sort of designers dictate to us. But
2: yeah, yeah. I certainly, I seem, I think that it's getting better, and partly thanks to Instagram, actually, with you know. Uh, people like Danai Mercer, I never know how to pronounce her name, but you know, mm. people who are really doing body positivity and fat liberation and all those things. Um, yeah, but you you, um, you mentioned very briefly there a tricky relationship with food Your yourself. Is that something that you're willing to talk about?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I mean, I have, it's never been formally diagnosed, so I don't want to sort of start making big claims but I think I have binge eating disorder so that's something that I kind of grappled with a lot in my teens and even from a very young age so I I remember going on my first diet when I was eight um asked asked my mum rather than two marmite sandwiches in my lunchbox if I could just have one marmite sandwich made from you know one piece of bread folded over which is such a tragic little sentence to say isn't it um and I think that it was so much learned behavior it was that was what stylish ladies did that was what glamorous mm. glamorous ladies did it, you know I don't think it was something I learned from from my parents at all my parents have always you know uh, had a very had of healthy relate like they've never criticized my appearance they would never ever tell me I needed to lose weight or anything like that but it was obviously something that I was getting from, from the media from celebrities from books I was reading from I think from being quite precocious and wanting to be older than I was and um And then, yeah, all all through my teens, you know, I had to sort of, I lived in a cycle of binging, dieting, binging, dieting. Um, you know, it never got to a point where it was considered particularly serious at the time. I think it was just very normal among my peers. You know, I always had friends in my teens that would be on various diets with me and, uh, Mm evening at uni I remember we used to do this thing where we ate fruit for two days straight ahead of like events or you know parties or whatever we wanted to wear a certain dress yeah um so that yeah that's always been something I've struggled with and it's weird because at the same time I love food so so much and I wrote a piece actually last year about how I feel that in sorting out my relationship with food and my body, which I'm, you know, happy to say that in recent years, I think I have come a long, long way. Mm. I haven't done anything resembling a diet for, you know, quite a few years now. And I'm on a much, much more even heel. Um, but what I have sort of replaced diet culture with is a kind of food perfectionism, which does come back to fashion again, in that I am obsessed with having the perfect meal every time. You know, I, I kind of I'm a freelancer I work from home a lot I'm in my pajamas a lot but I will still garnish my lunch as though (laughs) it's kind of going on Instagram as though it's being served in a restaurant I'll kind of do like a little sweep of sesame seeds along the top and uh, you know some cut up coriander and I'll kind of I, I need things to look beautiful and I need every Every meal, particularly if I'm on holiday or something, this drives my husband mad. I can't just go, oh, that place looks fine and we're hungry, let's eat there. Like it has to be the optimum meal. It has to be a place that I've researched rigidly. I've looked up the reviews. I've kind of cross-referenced it with Instagram to make sure it looks good as well. <laughs> and, and you know, I think that reached a point where, you know, that was quite unsustainable as well. And sometimes I would traipse around town for two hours, starving, hungry, just looking for you know whatever met my idea in my head of the perfect lunch that I need to eat today like what am I really really craving and I think a lot of that came from um intuitive eating actually which is not you know intuitive eating I think many of the principles are fantastic and really really helpful um but I think it is possible if you have a slightly obsessive personality to take these things too far and sometimes you should just have a cheese sandwich and get on with your day Mm. um And actually, interestingly, because I'm I'm currently, as we speak, I'm seven months pregnant. And that has been a very interesting journey because I had a lot of nausea. I've had a lot of problems with acid reflux and stuff. Food has become the enemy, actually, for quite a lot of my pregnancy. And I have had to just let go of those ideas of eating some kind of incredible, complex, delicious, (laughs) wonderful meal every time. And sometimes I just need fish fingers and a potato waffle. And that's what my stomach is asking for. It's been it's been an interesting journey.
2: I wonder if the actual having the baby for you will be the thing that finally changes those habits because you're just not going to have time to search for perfection. (laughs) In two months time, you're going to be all about the fish finger sandwich and no garnish whatsoever. (laughs) Um, it, I, I remember actually when we were organizing to do this uh, podcast you said that you'd just been traipsing around town for three hours looking for the perfect cookie so now it all makes sense <laughs> oh, yeah. oh cookies are yeah particular point of pride i can't eat a bad cookie <laughs> have you tried the what was the one that i mentioned now oh crosstown donuts have you tried their cookies no
3: i haven't had it yet i've got that in the back of my head i'm saving it for like you know a, a rainy day or a sad day or something
2: it was our lovely lovely food journalist friend um sophie morris who introduced me to the no. Crosstown donut cookie actually so thank you oh, sophie for thanks a lot sophie <laughs> um so here's a question that i don't ask enough on this podcast but what what london restaurants are you loving right now
3: ooh i mean right now is yeah that's it's going to be a loose phrase because as i say i've been eating very weirdly for the last kind of seven months um but Oh, it tell you where it's amazing that I went the other day for lunch, Miznon, which oh. is somewhere I had eaten in Paris um, and actually had been having one of those holidays where we did a lot of traipsing around, a lot of not managing to get tables at places and struggling to find places that kind of met my, <laughs> my specifications. And then we went to Miznon, which is um, an export from Tel Aviv. And it's all about kind of like... Um, beautiful burnished roast cauliflower and smoky kind of roast aubergine they do amazing kind of pitters. everything drizzled in tahini the one in Paris actually slightly superior to the one in London because the one in Paris has a self-serve tahini station where you can just ladle as much tahini as you like into paper cups and then fling it all Mm. over your food which is my idea of a good time um I I really love the good egg actually I kind of always love the Stoke Newington one and I just I think um, Israeli food is some of my very favourite. I love those kind of flavours. Um, so yeah, that's always a, a brilliant sort of brunch stalwart.
2: Um, you made me think of the Palomar, which is one of my absolute oh, I love faves. The Paloma, love yeah, the haven't been there. I don't think I've been there since pre-lockdown. I need to rectify that immediately.
3: Oh, it's so good. And um, what's the little uh, the Barbary as well? Yeah. I think it's owned by the same people. Yeah, yeah gorgeous. Absolutely. All of
2: their restaurants are great. Evelyn's table is amazing as well. Oh, I've not been there. No. Oh, you must. It's incredible. Absolutely incredible. Um and you're a freelance writer, so how um well you, you touched on it a little bit there, but what's your working and eating day like? So, I
3: mean, I'm not one of those people that can get so engrossed in my work that I forget to eat. I wish no. I were. No. no. Um so I I make a massive bowl of porridge every morning. I'm very glad we're back in porridge season again. Um And I pride myself on making really good porridge. I think you get a lot of disappointing porridge when you buy it out from like outlets. Um, I love really good kind of Scandi porridge, put lots of spices in it. I have blueberries on it. I have peanut butter in it. Um, Yeah, it's great. And then I tend to get very hungry again, sort of late morning, Um, even before I was pregnant. I'm always, yeah, I always need a bit of a snack. So I'll often have like a bit of toast or something. And I love soup. Um, I tend to, I try and make a lot of soup. I do sort of big, big vats of it and then freeze it all up. Um, but if I'm out and about, then I, yeah, I kind of often take myself to like Leon or somewhere like that, you know. Um, but yeah, I, I snack a lot. I always need to have a little sweet something mid afternoon. Normally, a, yeah normally that's when the cookie pilgrimages happen um, and at the moment particularly i need to kind of eat like every hour um mm-hmm. thanks pregnancy so i constantly have like oat cakes in my bag nens i've been putting mr nens grandkids through college i think so I've been <laughs> um and and then i yeah i i really love cooking a lovely meal in the evening so i'm not again i'm not someone who can work all night um I know I, it's like it gets to about five o'clock and I start thinking what am I gonna make for dinner and then like I want to be in the kitchen cooking something by like six um and and that I find it quite therapeutic and relaxing you know I like to take time to make a really lovely meal and often it'll be something quite simple like curry or a dal or mm-hmm. um veggie chili we eat a lot of veggie chili in this house yeah what um, spices
2: do you put in your porridge
3: <laughs> so Know, my current signature blend is ginger, go quite heavy on the ginger, yeah. cinnamon, and ground cardamom, Okay. Um, which, yeah, I just think is great. And then I used to do a bit of turmeric as well, but it's great. easy to overdo the turmeric. I think you want to go very kind of, yeah, go very yeah. easy on that little pinch. Um, and that's my fave. And then some maple syrup or some honey. Oh,
2: perfect. Oh, I'm stealing that. I like to use, <laughs> I, I put ginger and cinnamon in mine, but I haven't gone with cardamom or the turmeric actually. So I'll i have to do um, and speaking of your writing day, I believe you're writing a second novel. What What are you working on? I am. It's very slow
3: progress at the moment. Um, but I, yeah, I am. I'm working on another novel. So it's it's a brand new story. It's not, you know, a follow up to pre-loved. Um, I haven't even told my editor what it's called yet. So I'm not sure I should say. Um, but it is, it's going to be quite a black comedy. It's going to be, yeah, quite a sort of, quite a macabre premise but hopefully with a lot of humor um that comes out of it and yeah I tend to I try and do morning pages when I wake up I kind of try and write about three pages longhand Mm. of something um often like scenes from the book which I will then sit down and type up later so that's kind of about as far as a writerly routine that I've I've established um but yeah will there be lots
2: lots of food in the book
3: Oh, always, yeah, absolutely. So, one, <laughs> one of the early scenes that I've written is actually um, one of the, the main character is standing in a very long queue for a very popular no bookings restaurant, and she gets um, a really upsetting phone call, but she can't decide whether or not to get out of the queue oh. because she's like, "Well, I, it feels disrespectful, but at the same time, I I still need to eat, and I've stood in this queue for forty minutes, so I may as well stick it out." And um, <laughs> yeah,
2: oh, I love that. <laughs> Um, well, I'm going to finish off with the questions that I ask everyone on this podcast. So your relationship to food, fuel or pleasure? Absolutely pleasure. That's the right answer. Favourite meal of the
3: day? I'm going to say breakfast because it's the first one you get to eat. And my mum always says she goes to sleep thinking about what she's going to have for breakfast. And I think I do the same.
2: Hard agree. Yes. I, I, I interviewed my mum and dad on this podcast. And I'm pretty sure she said the, she said that. And I was like, I also go to bed thinking about what I'm going to have for breakfast. I didn't know you did that. And (laughs) we found out this thing about each other. Name one meal that always makes you feel happy. Uh, Noodles. Love a big bowl of noodles.
3: Yeah. Ramen, particularly when it's like raining outside.
2: Koya bar fan.
3: Yeah. Love Koya. Absolutely.
2: Um, One food that has healed you. Um, I'm gonna say
3: porridge. I think, yeah, like no matter how hard the day feels, and sometimes in the winter when you're self-employed and you know, you lead quite a lonely life, it can feel really difficult getting out of bed in the morning and motivating yourself. But knowing that I can eat a massive vat of porridge before I sit down and do anything, I think I find very healing.
2: Do you make it with milk or water? I use um half almond milk and half water. Okay, good to know. Uh, we have a we have a disagreement in our house over milk versus water. I'm I'm Ooh. team water, but I think that's probably because I tried to like not drink milk at some point. So when I yeah, was, when I was living it. alone, yeah. One dish that reminds you of family, um, picky bits, <laughs> which is my parents' kind of signature.
3: Um, you know, Saturday evenings, picky bits. It would be kind of a frozen pizza cut up and some baked potatoes and some salad and some hummus and various other bits um and that is still generally if we go to my parents for the weekend we'll always have a picky bits meal at some point
2: oh so good and we just don't have enough bake we don't have as many baked potatoes anymore no. I need more baked potatoes they are definitely due a retro comeback
3: yeah although yes. I hope I did I think someone in Soho did try to do a kind of gourmet baked potato shop
2: and I'm not sure it lasted can't mess do you know with when I started my career and I was working in the city, there was still baked potato. There were still those little um, places that sell baked, like you still had jacket potatoes for lunch. And you just yeah. don't get that hardly anywhere anymore, do you? It's just no. prep everywhere it's just, now. It's
3: a perfect lunch. Baked it potatoes, beans, yeah. Can't
2: beat it. Um, one recipe that everyone should know how to cook.
3: I'm going to say dal. I think dal, it's one of the cheapest things you can make. It's so sustaining. There's loads of different ways of, you know, jazzing it up. Obviously loads of different regional variations um, from, you know, different different parts of Asia. And I just love it. And you can water it down and have it as a soup for your lunch, have it as a curry for your dinner. Love it.
2: Your best meal ever? Oh god. Okay.
3: The first one that springs to mind is was in Tel Aviv. I went for a friend's wedding. Um I was probably massively tired or jet lagged because we'd flown out kind of overnight via Kiev. Um and then we we got there and the friend who was getting married is a professional chef. She's absolutely amazing and she had booked us um this gorgeous restaurant. It was a little courtyard twinkly fairy lights the food was exquisite I think probably the best roasted cauliflower I've ever had um incredible kenefe which I love um sort of Israeli cheesecake with the fantastic shredded pastry and oh and it was just wonderful and it was one of those moments where you've arrived in a new new destination you feel completely you know like so so far away from home and everything's so exciting and we were surrounded by friends and it was just magic.
2: Oh, that sounds incredible. I I went to Israel as a very young child, but I need to go as an adult. I I, I love the food as well. Yeah, the greatest eating holiday I've ever had. Amazing. Finally, some food for thought. What is the one piece of advice you would give to everyone in terms of food and fashion?
3: Oh, I would say uh, don't be fooled into queuing for an hour for small plates when what you really want is a wagamama's or a pizza (laughs) don't do it (laughs) we've all had that miserable experience where you're kind of carving a solitary meatball into three pieces so that you can all eat a piece and it's cold and the potatoes always arrive after everything else is finished I think that's amazing 36 pounds exactly like there are some don't get me wrong there are some brilliant small plates places out there But um, I've been ringing this death knell for quite a few years now. We need to get over
2: it. Oh, Lauren, it has been an absolute joy. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you for having me. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can find Lauren on Instagram and Twitter at Lauren Bravo, and you can pre-order Pre-Loved from all online retailers or buy it in your favourite bookshop when it comes out in April 2023. You can also follow me on Instagram at Laura Price Writes for more information on my past and future podcast guests, and you can buy my novel Single-Bald Female in bookshops and online. My main character Jess is a magazine journalist who knows very little about fashion, but she does know how to bake a good cake, and I reckon she'd have loads in common with Gwen, the protagonist of Pre-Loved. Now, a favour to ask, if you're enjoying this podcast, please go to Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you're listening on and give this podcast a review or rating and hit the subscribe button. It's an independent podcast and I have no real other way of marketing the podcast. So it really, really helps if you um, give it a rating or a review as it allows other people to discover the podcast i'm really really grateful for your help also if you've read single wall female please do go on to amazon or waterstones or um, goodreads and give it a review if you liked it i'll be back in another two weeks with a fresh episode and i would really love to see you there thank you so much for listening to life and food with laura price